Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We have made our way through the Gospel of Luke and now have reached a crucial story when it comes to the life of Jesus. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 13. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to your holy word, and even as was sung a moment ago, we are well aware of our weaknesses, and we ask that you would condescend and stoop to our weakness and give us grace to fight this war that you would forgive us where we have sought to serve and enjoy ourselves and this world and the pleasures within it that are fleeting, that you would forgive us when we seek for anything less than your glory, and that you would lift up and magnify your name in our hearts and in our minds, even as we look at this text of Scripture together, and that no matter what, Lord, our hearts and minds would be consumed with loving and knowing Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Have any of you ever played the game Axes and Allies? Has anybody ever played that game? I'm the only one who knows that, has ever played that game? All right, we've got one. All right. So if, has any of you ever played Risk? Okay, there we go. Now we have some people who played Risk. So Axis and Allies is a more complex version of Risk, basically. When I was younger and my brothers and I, we were really into Risk, one Christmas, my mom and dad 
got us a game that we had been wanting for a long time called Axes and Allies. And basically, it's a, ri- a game of risk, like I said, more complex, with a map of the entire world, but it's set during the time of World War II. And so you can pick whichever color you want to be and what, what countries you'll end up taking, and then the goal, obviously, is world domination on the board. So my brothers and I, we were playing that, and we were... We, were, we would play that for hours on end. In fact, in my schoolroom that we had in our house, we had a table in there, and frequently that board game was on the table taking up all the space, conveniently, so we weren't able to do school, unfortunately. But, but we would play that game for hours, and sometimes it would last for days. But the goal of that game was world domination, and you had to strategize very carefully if you wanted to win. Now, there's a sense in which chance, quote-unquote, played a part because you're rolling dice. But at the same time, if you have a smaller unit going against a larger unit, you know the likelihood of you winning is probably not very high. And that's because you need to strategize and you need to have the resources necessary to fight in the war. In order to win the war, you have to have the resources and power. The same could be true of spiritual warfare. You are in a battle for your life. Your very life depends upon whether or not you will fight in the war. And the question, of course, is simply, will you fight in the war? And most of us as Christians would say, well, yes, I will fight in the war, the spiritual warfare that I'm experiencing. Paul talks about the fact that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this present age. So we're in a spiritual warfare. The question is, will you utilize the resources that you have in that warfare? The problem for us as humans is that, unfortunately, we often don't take advantage of the resources we have. And anybody who's in a war, whether they be a nation or an ethnicity group or whatever throughout human history, if they didn't utilize the resources they had, they didn't win. Because the person or the group or the nation that utilized the resources they had had a greater chance of success in the battle and ultimately in the war. We come to Luke 4, and we see a battle royale, a war that was fought 2,000 years ago, a battle so intense that most of us probably will never experience the intensity that is described by Dr. Luke for us in Luke 4. But this battle was more than just a battle of good versus evil. Because the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was really a test. A test of who he was. A test of if he had the power to do what he said he would do throughout the rest of the gospel. A test to see whether or not he would be faithful and obedient. A test to see whether or not he had the power to overcome Satan himself. But there are several things about this text, I think, that are intriguing, and I want to answer those questions. So for the remainder of our time, here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the text of the temptation of Jesus and just explain it as we go. And then at the very end, I want to give you three reasons why we as Christians can read this text of Scripture and say with confidence, yes, 
I have the resources available. I have the power available. I have the victory at my fingertips over sin, over death, and even over hell itself. But we have to understand first what Jesus went through before we can get to that point. So let's quickly walk through what Jesus walked through as well. First of all, we see the setting of this temptation, and that's in verses 1 and 2, where we read that Jesus, after he has been proclaimed at his baptism as the Son of God, and then after John elucidates for us his genealogy displaying that, yes, he was a human being, but ultimately this was all in the plan of God. And we saw at the end of the last chapter in verse 38 that Adam is described as the Son of God and in some ways is setting the table for us to see the connection between the first Adam and the last Adam being Jesus. We read that right after this, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and returns from Jordan, led by that same Spirit, into the wilderness. Now, where I come from in Minnesota, when I think wilderness, I'm thinking a coniferous forest. But that was not the case here. The wilderness here that is described in verse 1 by Luke was really a barren wasteland. So barren that even the wildlife itself would not be there because there was nothing to sustain it. So where Jesus is directed by God's Holy Spirit is into a barren wasteland. If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, the Son of Man, if he is beloved by God, as we read in Luke 3.22, why on earth is Jesus led by God's Spirit into a place of abandonment, emptiness, loneliness? Why? We'll see that in a moment, but suffice it to say, it's mentioned twice that Jesus is filled with the Spirit and then led by that Spirit into this place. And there is a reason, but I will answer that momentarily. Notice in verse 2, though, that as Jesus is led into the wilderness, one of the reasons was, verse 2, to be tempted for 40 days by the devil himself. We could probably say we have not experienced direct temptation by the devil himself. I will just say I am pretty sure the devil hasn't wasted his time on me. He sent his minions to take care of me. He's like, I got no time for that guy. There's bigger fish to fry. And I don't think we can rightly say when we sin, the devil made me do it. I think the devil is too busy looking for bigger game. Certainly no bigger game in his mind could he have seen than the very one proclaimed to be the Messiah of the Jewish nation. And so Satan for 40 days tempts Jesus Christ. And during those days, verse 2 tells us, Jesus ate nothing. Why does Luke tell us that point? Why is Jesus led into a wilderness by the Spirit of God into a place of abandonment and a barren wasteland? And why... Does Jesus not eat anything for 40 days? Part of that probably is because there isn't anything to eat. He's in the wilderness. But suffice it to say, afterward, when all that had ended, verse 2, the no-duh statement of the day, he was hungry. Jesus is weak. The human nature of Jesus is hungry and yearning for food. 
So this is the setting. Satan and Jesus are the two characters. The place is a barren wasteland. And the experience of Satan seems to be the high ground in the war. Where if you are in a war, you want to be in the high ground because then you can oversee the landscape and the the opposing enemy has to get uphill to get to you. It seems as though the way Luke is describing us, Satan has the high ground and Jesus is in the very vulnerable position. He's weak. So we come then to the temptation, and Luke records for us three specific things. I believe Jesus was tempted with much more than just these three. If he's being tempted for 40 days, certainly there was more than just these three that Luke records. But these three are a summary of what Satan was throwing at Jesus Christ. And we come to temptation number one in verse three, where the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Satan's temptation begins with almost the exact same formula that he began with all the way back in Genesis 3, where he doesn't assume something to be true. He questions something. If you are the Son of God. When Satan speaks to Eve, what does he say? Did God really say? That's his first step, is to create doubt, to assume things aren't true. There's different types of if-then statements. There are some if-then statements where if, if something is true and we assume it is, therefore or then this. But that's not what Satan's saying. He's not saying, if you are the Son of God and we know you are, then go ahead and command these stones to be bred. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, if you are the Son of God and the jury's still out, Take this stone right here. Turn it into bread. Why does Satan tempt Jesus to turn a stone into bread? Well, one of the obvious answers is Jesus is starving. He's hungry. He needs food. And I have to say, most of us in this room probably would say, okay, if I had the power to turn a stone into bread and I hadn't been eating for 40 days, I would certainly turn it into bread. I mean, I'd turn it into the biggest loaf of bread you ever saw. But it was more than this. Satan is suggesting something to Jesus. He's suggesting to Jesus that Jesus is not being cared for. If you are the Son of God, and if at your baptism the words that your Father said, you are my beloved Son and you I am well pleased, if that's true, then why isn't he feeding you? Why are you hungry right now? Look, you're the Son of God. You do what you need to do. You're hungry. Take this stone right here, turn it into bread. I think perhaps... This may sound crazy to say, the greatest theologian is one of the greatest theologians, is Satan himself. Because he recognizes something here. He knows that the triune God has existed in eternity with a fellowship unbreakable, and that that fellowship has led to the plan of salvation for the precious people of God. And that God the Father would care for his son 
and do what is right and that ultimately Jesus would have to pass and prove pass the test and prove that he is indeed the faithful last Adam. I'm convinced Satan probably knows something to that effect, and so what is he doing? The first step he's trying to do is create a breach within the Godhead. Jesus, the Father's not caring for you, so guess what? You need to care for yourself. What did, what did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? Look, the reason why he said that is because God's not caring for you. He knows that the minute you eat this tree, you're going to be like God's knowing good and evil. He's not caring for you properly. It's no different right here. God the Father is not caring for you. You're hungry, so here's a stone. Turn it into bread. But what does Jesus say? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. It could be easy for us to read that and just skip over the significance of what is happening in the original text there in in Deuteronomy chapter 8. But I want you to notice that when God in Deuteronomy 8 is talking to his people, he says, I'll just read from verse 1 in a few verses, He says in verse 1, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Notice this, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes from this text in which God reminds Israel that he had blessed them with physical food, but ultimately they needed something greater. The physical food was a representation of something far greater that they needed. There is a spiritual food that would feed their souls and give them life. That the manna, yes, God provided for their physical needs, ultimately was a pointer to their spiritual needs. And so Jesus, rather than focusing on the hunger that his stomach was feeling, the hunger pangs, turns to the tempter and says to him, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' response is simply, you know that I have come to be the bread of heaven to meet the spiritual needs of my people. So I will not take myself out of the situation that my father has me in. I will be a faithful obedient Messiah. Satan loses round one. We come to round two in verse five. The devil takes him up to a high mountain, and here's what he does. He proclaims and shows all of the kingdoms of the world. What is perhaps the greatest ambition of sinful man is to have a position of authority and leadership. 
to be in a place where you have no vulnerabilities, no accountabilities. You can be in the greatest position of leadership and authority so that you can do whatever you want. That has been Satan's desire from the beginning, and so he points to all of the kingdoms of the world, and he says to Jesus, I have authority over these. In fact, Scripture does say that Satan is the prince of the power of the air that he rules in some senses over this domain for this short time, that God has given him the permission to do so. And so Satan says, all this authority has been given to me and all of this glory has been delivered to me and I can give it to whomever I want. And Satan will in the future continue to try to do those kinds of things where he places people in authority, but ultimately he doesn't realize that even his wicked, evil intentions are used by God. Nevertheless, he turns to Jesus and says, I will give this to you, and here's all I ask. You fall down and worship me. Here, Satan tips his hand. The other gospels, they change the order of the temptations, and often this one will be the last one, but here Luke decides to put this right in the middle, perhaps giving emphasis to the fact that this is ultimately his endgame. Satan wishes to be in the place of God. I will exalt myself to the Most High. I will make my throne above his throne. So Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, fall down and worship me, and all the glories of the kingdoms of this world are yours. Jesus' response in verse 8 is again, to quote Scripture, to remind himself of truth, where he says, get behind me, Satan. You think you have the right to tell me that I should worship you, but I have the authority in heaven and earth to tell you to get behind me. And this is a quote that Jesus will say to Satan another time. Get behind me, Satan. I ultimately am the winner. You are the loser. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. He says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord, Yahweh your God, and Him only shall you serve. The goal of the Old Testament was not only to show the sinfulness of mankind and to show God's outworking and plan of bringing about his Messiah, but it was also to show that the whole point of our existence is to worship God and worship him alone. In the Ten Commandments, what does God elucidate there for the children of Israel? Does he tell them, hey, it's totally okay. You guys can go ahead and, and worship this little rock over here and you can make your little carved little wooden image over here and that's totally okay. It's not a big deal. Just make sure that somewhere in there, maybe from 5 to 6 p.m. in the evenings, you fit me in your schedule. Is that what God says? He says, no. You shall not have any graven image. And you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And God over and over again says, I am a jealous God, jealous for your attention. I mean, think about this. Those of you in here who are married, think back to your days when you were dating. You were in the stages and throes of young love. You felt as if your 
significant other could do no wrong. And then all of a sudden, when you walk around the corner one day, you see him or her talking to somebody else. Did you feel the pangs of jealousy within you? You did. Most of us do, anyways. If you're one of those people who didn't, wow, I'm actually impressed. But most of us do. You feel that jealousy. Why? Because in some ways, you want that exclusive attention of that other person. You don't want to share that person with anybody else. God does not want his glory to be shared with anything else. And more than that, God will not share his glory with another. His glory alone belongs to him. And so Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So finally, round two goes to Jesus again. And in verse nine, round three begins where Jesus is brought to Jerusalem and Satan sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is a strange place to bring him, but this is in some ways what Satan is doing. He's using symbolism, and, and throughout all of this, he's using symbolism to, to hearken back to things from the Old Testament. And in verse 9, he says, If you are the Son of God, returning back to that question, the jury's still out. Throw yourself down from here. For it is written. And Satan, as the theologian he is, quotes from Psalm 91. He'll give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they'll bear you up. They'll catch you if you fall, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So throw yourself down. Satan is basically saying, look, God has promised to take care of you. He has promised to, to protect you so that no matter what happens, you'll be fine. So hey, let's see if he's going to keep his promise. And I'm quoting Bible to you, Jesus, so... You can't, you can't deny me now. Satan once more is presuming upon what God has said. In fact, he's quoting Scripture. And he's quoting it accurately in the sense of he's got the right verses. But he's misinterpreting what those verses are saying. And Jesus responds to him by saying, It has been said, Scripture again, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. Jesus effectively says, I will not presume upon the promises of God. You quote the right verse, but you're misinterpreting and twisting what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to understand that this is to say God will protect us, but that doesn't mean we presume upon that protection. So Jesus says, ultimately, you do not test or tempt the Lord your God. And I think Jesus is saying that for two reasons. One is because he's saying we are not presuming upon God and his promises. But number two, he's saying, I am God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Three rounds, KO. Jesus is the winner. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan wants another chance at Jesus, but the first fight, the first battle, the first war goes to the Son of God. All of this 
tells us, I believe, three things about who Jesus is and ultimately what that means for us as we close. The first thing we learn is that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke has labored this point over and over again. He's shown Jesus' divine origin. He shows us that Jesus was proclaimed to be the Son of God at his baptism, and this is not the adoption of Jesus as the Son of God, but simply the announcement of the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. That is his identity. He lists the genealogy and shows that Adam is the Son of God, and in some ways is saying, there's the first Adam who's the Son of God. Now here's the last Adam who is the capital S, Son of God. And now... Luke is drawing, I believe, the parallels between that first Adam and last Adam that he was describing in the previous chapter. For if you think about it, the first Adam was in a perfect garden. He had every tree in the garden except one that he could enjoy. His belly was full. And Satan comes to him and tempts him. The last Adam is not in a beautiful, lush garden, but in a barren, empty wasteland. And his belly is not full. He's been hungry because he has not eaten for 40 days. And Satan comes to him. In that perfect garden, Satan tempts Eve by questioning what God has said. And in the barren wasteland, Satan tempts Jesus by questioning what God has said and the identity of who Jesus is. In that garden, Adam knowingly and willfully ate of the fruit from the tree he was not supposed to eat. He failed In the barren wasteland of the wilderness, Jesus Christ resisted attack after attack after attack by Satan, and he won. The parallels are not not mistaken. They're not unintended. They are very much specifically meant to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, and number two, that he is our perfect representative. For Adam failed, and he represented all the rest of us. Some people might say, that doesn't seem fair. Adam should have just failed for himself, and the rest of us should have had the decision to decide whether or not we would obey God and eat the tree or not. So that Adam, he gets his own little curse, but when they have their kids, their kids start with a blank slate, and then if they fail, then they're under their own curse. That's the way it should have been, you might think. But Adam became a representative of, And during the testing period, he failed. And so what God does is he sends the second person of the triune Godhead to come to earth, and he's tested under worse circumstances with more intense temptations, and he succeeds. Jesus represented us as the last Adam And he obeyed. He didn't rebel. He didn't sin. He was faithful. So Adam 
is our imperfect representative. And because of Adam, he did what each of us would have done. I don't know how many times I've thought, boy, I don't know that I would have done that. I don't know if I were Adam that I would have eaten that tree. But the reality is, yes, I would have. And the reality is, yes, you would have too. Adam did what every single one of us in this room would have done. And Jesus did what every single one of us can't do. Therefore, he is our perfect representative so that later on in the book of Luke, when Luke records for us that Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That the wrath of God is poured on Christ as our perfect representative who was sinless, who passed the test, who was a faithful high priest, and that when he cries out, Tetelestai, the Greek words for it is finished. That the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sin made it possible for us to have new life. Which leads me to number three, that Jesus is our powerful redeemer. If Jesus had failed in this test at any point, he would have demonstrated that every single thing I've just listed could not possibly be true of him. If he failed on one point in this temptation, he would not be the Son of God, the faithful Messiah. If he failed in this temptation, he would not be our perfect representative. And if he failed, he would not or could not possibly be our powerful Redeemer. Do you not see how this was the battle royale? Do you not see how everything was at stake in this war? And do you not see how amazing and wonderful the power of God is to defeat Satan? Jesus Christ won the war, won the battle, securing our victory over sin, our victory over hell, our victory over death. Which leads me to two questions. Number one, you are under the curse of the first Adam. And if you will not submit to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect high priest, who died on the cross in your place, who rose from the death, vindicating himself and demonstrating his power over sin and death and hell, and now is at the right hand of God, and that if you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've not done that, then you are under the condemnation of God. And my first question is, will you trust Jesus to save you from your sins? He's the only way. He is the only way. There is no other way to salvation and forgiveness. If you have not, I'm begging you, do that today. Trust Christ. The war that you are fighting, you cannot win. And so you must give up your arms. You must wave the white flag and say, Jesus, I cling to you alone. I trust you as my Savior of my sins. And the reality is, is God will forgive you. The second question is for us Christians, we have seen that Jesus has won the war over Satan. And sometimes we can read this, this text and say, well, this is just basically a manual for how we deal with temptations. You know, teenage guys, it's really hard. I'm struggling with my thought life. I'm struggling with what I'm looking at on the internet. So what do I need to do? Oh, I should just do what Jesus did. I should just start quoting verses as if this is simply a manual for fighting temptation. It's not less than that. Certainly, 
Jesus does model for us what we should do as Christians, turn and run to the Word of God. But the reality is, is it's more than that. This is a demonstration that Jesus Christ has won over sin. He has won over Satan. He has won over the world, which means you have every power and resource available at you because as a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ within you. You have his power within you. So when you are fighting the war of the Christian life, you have no excuse not to win. You have the power and resources at your fingertips. When you are struggling with bitterness towards somebody, you have the power of God's Spirit to overcome and fight that bitterness. When you're struggling with anger towards your children or kids, towards your parents, as a Christian, you have God's Spirit within you and the power and resources to fight that anger. So that when Paul says, let not bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or evil speaking, let it all be put away from you along with all malice. When he says that, he's not telling you something you can't do. He's telling you something you can through the power of God's Spirit. When you struggle with that besetting sin, whatever it happens to be, whether it be your thought life, whether it be something that you're looking at on the internet, whether it be your interaction with your family members, whether it be with your coworkers, whether it be dissatisfaction in your workplace, whatever it happens to be, you have the power available to you to win the war, ultimately, because Jesus has already won it. The question is, will you utilize the resources you have? You can win the war because Jesus did. So in short, if I were summarizing what this is all about, what Luke is trying to help us understand is that Jesus is the righteous Son of God whose perfect life of obedience and glorious victory over Satan secures the certainty of our own spiritual victory in him. You do not have to live defeated, Christian. You can win, and you have the spiritual armor available at your fingertips, you have the power of God's Spirit within you, working mightily within you. And you have the knowledge that Jesus Christ will perform that work he began in you until the day of Jesus Christ. The question is, will you utilize it? And I hope you will. Let's pray. Lord, you have given to us a glorious account of your victory over death, over Satan, over hell itself. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to give up in the fight. You are a faithful high priest. You know the weaknesses that we have, and so we thank you that you condescend to us in our weakness. That while we were yet sinners, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly as our perfect representative. Lord, I pray for any person in this room who has yet to trust Jesus as his or her Savior, that that would be the primary focus of his or her hearts and mind today. And as Christians, you have given to us, Lord, the greatest joy, the greatest hope in Jesus Christ. We have the power and resources to battle the sin day by day until one day we die and meet you face to face, or until one day Christ comes again. In either case, you will raise us up, give us glorified bodies, and finally and totally remove the curse of sin. Until that day, Lord, help us to be faithful. 
use your spirit to help us in our war and help us to see and know the victory that we have in Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.